Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to Not Another Mummy podcast with me, Alison Perry. My guest today is living proof that it's possible to take the knocks that life gives you and use them to fuel you to succeed. Zane Asher is a CNN anchor based in New York and a mum of two boys. Her book, Where the Children Take Us, is a memoir detailing her family's sacrifices, strength and determination. It follows her parents' journey from war-torn Nigeria to settling in South London to raise their children. When Zane was five years old, tragedy struck and her father was killed in a road accident an accident that nearly killed her older brother Chuatel and left her mother to raise four children single-handed. Zane talks to me about how her mother's inner strength, along with the rituals of radical mothering from her village in Nigeria, resulted in her four children being hugely successful. Zane being a CNN anchor herself, Chuatel being an Oscar-nominated actor, and their siblings being a doctor and entrepreneur. It's a hugely inspiring story of one family's experiences and I am so grateful to Zane for chatting with me about it. Zane, a warm welcome to the podcast today. It is midday here in the UK, but it's 7am where you are in New York, <laughs> isn't it? Yes, I woke up about an hour and a half ago. So um, oh. yeah, but thank you so much for having me. Are you are you a bit of an early bird generally? Do you have to be up bright and early to prepare for your CNN show? I do, I do. I mean, um, at the beginning when the show launched a year ago, we're talking 4am wake-ups. Now that it's more established, um, I think we're in the groove of 5, 5.30, 5, 5.30am. That's when I start my day usually. I mean, that's that, it's early though, right? 5.30, that's... <laughs> I know, but the thing is, once you have kids... Um, you know, before I had children, I thought that, you know, 5am, I, I never woke up at that time unless I had a flight to catch or something. Yeah. Once you have children, you get used to seeing regular sort of 4am wake ups, 5.30am. So it's actually, it's actually now become quite normal to me. My son, my youngest is eight months old. Oh so goodness. it wasn't so long ago that, you know, we were doing every two hours through the night. So um, I'm grateful if he makes it to five in the morning without waking up. I'm so ecstatic. So how old was he when you started doing your CNN show? He must have been very young. Well, so um, I've been at CNN for, in total, over 10 years. And I have two children. So I have a three-year-old 
and um, an eight-month-old. Um, so when I launched this new show, I got promoted last year, um, I was pregnant, actually. And so then a few months later, I gave birth, and then I was on maternity leave for a bit, and then I came back in November. So, yeah. And that's pretty cool, right? Because you hear so many stories, and, you, you know, so many women share experiences of not getting that promotion when they're pregnant, or... Um, yeah. you know, being passed over for opportunities. So that's pretty good. I'm so lucky. I'm so lucky because, you know, CNN is an environment where a lot of the sort of um, top jobs are actually um, are actually led by women. Um, so there's a lot of women in the C-suite. There are so many women executives. There are so many, obviously, female anchors. So the idea of not giving someone a promotion because they're pregnant, I mean, it's just, no, doesn't, I mean, it doesn't, it just generally doesn't really happen at CNN. Obviously for a lot of um, other companies, it's certainly a different story. But um, for me, I got, I'm very, very lucky uh, to work at a company that, that is uh, understanding in that sense. That's great. And your job does seem to afford you um, amazing experiences because just this week you were at the Oscars with your husband, weren't you? <laughs> Yes, I was. And I was in the room when, um, when all of that happened. So um, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about because there's been no coverage. There's been, <laughs> there was, there were no news stories coming out of the Oscars this week. <laughs> no, but we, we just like everybody else thought it was a, thought it was a joke, you know, yeah. at the beginning, you know, and then, um, and then we slowly began to realize, wait a minute, this, maybe this isn't staged. And that was when Will Smith started using, um, foul language you know he famously doesn't even swear in his songs and so you realize that it was actually quite serious so I mean everybody was on the edge of their seats especially when he won the Oscar because it was sort of like wow we're actually going to hear from him after he uh I mean he actually now is going to be able to try to I guess explain himself after what he did and so yeah, it was quite the Oscars to attend. I'll tell quite you that the experience. much. experience. When you're at these sort of things, do you do you have that sort of pinch me moment or are you quite blasé about it? I mean, because at the end of the day, you know, do you, it, it must feel like I've just, you know, you know, I grew up in South London and, you know, people from South London don't go to the Oscars, yet here I am. <laughs> Um, well, it's my second time at the Oscars. Um, my brother was nominated for Best Actor for 12 years. So were years you there when he was nominated? Yes, I was there when he was nominated. So that was the, that was a pinch me moment because it's sort of a very different experience when you're not just attending the Oscars, but you're with somebody who's nominated for Best Actor. It's a very, very different experience. Um, you know, who you meet and, um, you know, all the different sort of events you, get to go to and the whole experience was just wild you know because yeah we're from West Norwood um who would have ever thought that you know I'd be attending the Oscars not just attending but actually watching my brother be nominated it's unbelievable <laughs> actually even now I think back at it um so that was that was my first experience and then um and then um this week I got to go just through CNN um so they get tickets so yeah Wonderful. I mean, and this is what's so wonderful about your book. So your book, um, Where the Children Take Us, um, it's about triumph over tragedy, isn't it? It's about taking the knocks that life gives you and using them to fuel you to succeed, which, you know, we can all see that you and your siblings have absolutely done. Um, I mean, not that West Norwood, it's not like, it's not like you grew up, you know, we're talking about it, I'm talking about it like it's, you know, some absolutely terrible place. It really isn't. I live not far from West Norwood. I live, I live in Bromley. So I'm just down the road. 
How do you know close by? You know, I, I know the area you grew up in well, and it's it's, That's so it's funny. lovely. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. Um, but the book, you know, it, it, it absolutely starts with, you know, um, you know, the, the story, I guess, begins with your parents um, being in Nigeria and meeting and then moving to London to start their family, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, the book is um, is filled with so many celebratory moments, but also a lot of pain and um, tragedy as well. Um, you know, in the first chapter, I talk about probably what is still is the worst day in my family's life and it was September 1988 and um, my mother was in the living room and it was early evening and she got a phone call and the voice on the other end of the line simply said your husband and your son have been involved in a car crash one of them is dead and we don't know which one and you can imagine just the level of utter uh devastation, the sort of emotional earthquake that that moment entailed. And it turned out to be my father who had passed away. My father and brother were on a father-son road trip in Nigeria. And it was my dad's idea because growing up in London, he really wanted my brother to get a better sense of who he was, his culture, his background. And so they were on the road leaving Enugu, which is where we're from originally, going to Lagos, which is the main city, the busiest city in Nigeria. And on the way, their car was hit by a tractor trailer. And initially, I talk about this in the book, the authorities thought that everybody had died instantly. Um, and then it emerged hours later that maybe one person had survived, perhaps a little boy had survived. Um, everybody, because authorities thought that everybody had passed away, everybody was taken to the morgue. And it was only when... Um, they arrived at the morgue that somebody realized that my brother was still breathing. And so it was such a difficult time in my family's life. I mean, my mother, who, by the way, traveled to Nigeria without knowing who in her family she was going to be, bur- she was going to be burying that week because there was just so much confusion as to whether, you know, both of them had passed away or whether there was actually one survivor, so much uncertainty you know, you think about sort of that level of pain and the fact that through that pain, obviously it was very difficult for the first several months where my mother would just lock herself in her bedroom and cry for days and days at a time. Um, but eventually when she emerged from that grief, um, she really fought for us. You know, she carried us on her back and fought with every fiber of her being to give us a better life. And I talk about in the book just some of the things that she did. I mean, because of her her tough love style, her resilience, her relentless discipline. I mean, she is the reason why my siblings and I have surpassed every expectation for a family in those circumstances. You know, because of her, you know, I'm now an anchor at CNN. My brother, who, by the way, was the one that was uh, taken to the morgue that day, is now an Oscar-nominated actor for his role in 12 Years a Slave. And my sister is a doctor and my oldest brother is a very successful entrepreneur. And so the book for me is really a celebration of my mother. I list out in the book just some of the things that she did, um, some of the extraordinary, I mean, really remarkable things that she did to fight for us because her whole goal was to make sure that we were able to focus on anything besides, you know, that empty chair at the dinner table. And, um, 
I'm, I'm incredibly proud of her. And so that is what, that's what the book is about. And I love how you describe, um, you know, you, you, you talk about how you and your siblings experienced some racism growing up in South London. And I love how you describe, um, you know, what your mum did by regularly showing you all of the West African and black people who had achieved brilliant things, whether it was books or newspaper cuttings or I guess the music you were listening to. Like you, you talk about that Lighthouse family in the 90s and, <laughs> you know, like filling, filling your home with this kind of black positivity. Absolutely. So what she would do was um, she would find newspaper clippings in The Guardian, The Times, Telegraph, any article that showed a black person, especially if they were West African, um, a black person who had overcome something and soared, um, a black person who had excelled in their chosen pr- profession, and she would cut them out and she would plaster them to our walls. So we would come home and in our hallways, there would be image after image after image of um, black people who had thrived. And so that really had a profound effect because it changed there's a there's a belief, you know, that really the only thing that can hold a person back in life is the perception that they have of themselves. And my mother really changed the perception we had of ourselves by showing us examples of black people who had done remarkable things. Um, she really upended, at least in our, our minds, what it meant to be black and what black people were capable of achieving. And she drilled it into us that if we worked as hard as they did, um, then we could have what they had. And so that was so powerful because it changed our subconscious beliefs. Yeah. And you talk quite specifically about the, um, you know, the whole triumph over tragedy and taking the knocks that life gives you. Um, you, talk about, you, talk, you talk about this being something that is very ingrained in Nigerian culture. Why do you think that Nigeria as a place produces, you know, this, this drive in so many? I think that's a great question. I think that, um, you know, anyone who has traveled to Nigeria and spent any time there. I mean, there is a lot to love and to cherish about Nigeria, but the country does have a lot of problems. Um, you know, I was there on a recent trip about a month ago and, you know, to get anything done, you're contending with, you know, there's no, uh, electricity. Um, there's little or no cell phone service in certain places. And so to get anything done oftentimes takes an entire day. Like I'm grateful in that kind of environment if I get one thing done the whole day. When I come back to America, I'm grateful because of how productive I can be. So when you take somebody who is in that kind of environment and how you have to do battle every single day to get simple things done, um, you sort of transport that person into the West where I'm not going to say that everything's so easy, but certainly it is much easier, um, if you, in terms of, you know, productivity at the very least, you transport them into that environment and then they, they thrive, you know, they really can, um, have the opportunity to excel. And I think that is part of it. My mother herself came of age during the Biafra war. And, um, that was, I mean, that really is still to this day, one of the deadliest, one of the most horrific wars in African history. Um, it lasted two and a half years, which might seem relatively short, but what people went through during that time, during that short two and a half year period, is really the stuff of nightmares. We're talking about people having to eat crickets and snakes to survive. We're talking about soldiers having 
literally no food. I mean, the, the images from the Biafra war were very prominent, um, in this country and in America in the 1960s. I sort of feel though now people don't seem to know or at least remember, um, as much about it, but it was a dreadful time to live. And my mother's job, especially as the oldest child in her family, my grandmother had had seven children by that time. And as the oldest in her family, her job was to go to the market and sell cassava to sort of make sure that her own family didn't succumb to starvation like so many others did. And she risked her life doing that because the bombings were relentless. Um, you know, she would be at the market stall and suddenly you would hear sirens and suddenly there would be a flash of fire. There would be machine gun fire raining down. There would be an explosion and she would have to run for cover. And that's at 14, 15 years old. So you think about that as a training ground, if you will, for resilience. I think that is where, for my mother personally, that is where her strength comes from. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. And all of these experiences, you know, you talk about them, you know, today, but also in, in your book, you do talk about them like you were there. And so I'm really interested. I mean, I'm guessing that a lot of these stories will be told as you're growing up and you share, you know, stories and talk about things with family members. Um, but how did you when, you, when you were writing this book, did you go back and interview family members who were, you know, at these places, having these conversations, feeling these feelings, because it really comes alive in the book. Thank you. So, um, yes. So my dad passed away when I was five years old. And so um, in order to really sort of paint a picture and give an accurate portrayal about his life, I had to interview dozens of people. So I'm talking about even my dad's high school friends um, who were with him before the Biafra War started and then extended relatives in our village. Um, you know, when my brother was moved from the morgue to a hospital, there was one sort of extended family member who was 19 years old at the time who stayed with him. And he was sort of in charge of looking after Chiwetel while he was in hospital before my mother came. But obviously my mother, when she did come, had so much to uh, sort out because yes, her son was in hospital, but she also had to arrange a funeral for the love of her life as well. And so, and she was pregnant at the time, wasn't she? And she was pregnant at the time. I mean, that's a with lot. My lit- with my little sister. So, um, one of our extended relatives who was a teenager was looking after Chiwetel in hospital and so great to reconnect with him 
you know, and to thank him again um, after all these years and also for him to really paint an accurate portrayal of what it was like in the hospital, for example. With the Biafra War, a lot of the information came from my mother um, because obviously she was 14, 15 during the Biafra War and that's old enough to have uh, a decent recollection. But also my dad's brother um, worked for Colonel Ojukwu, who was the um, commander in charge of Biafra at the time. And so he wrote a book as well. And so the combination of all of that allowed me to really dig deep and um, and, and paint and accurate of a picture as I as I could. So yeah. Now you know you you talked about um, the way that your mum raised you and um, you know the, the values that came through. But um, tell me about your mum's plan to get you into Oxford University because it was pretty <laughs> extreme, wasn't it? It was very extreme. And my, my mother, you know, she had. Um, I think for her. This idea of her daughter going to Oxford University, I mean, for a lot of immigrants, not just Nigerian immigrants, um, but I think for a lot of immigrants, there's this belief that Oxford and Cambridge are the ticket to a better life. And for my mother, whose education was interrupted during the Biafra War, she really appreciated what England had to offer her and her children in terms of um, education. I mean, she really treasured it and valued it. And she decided that she was not going to waste it. She was not going to waste this opportunity of a lifetime that she'd been given. And so we had discussed, you know, this idea of me possibly going to Oxford. And um, at the time, I had good grades in school, but they were not Oxford material grades. You know, I was not what I would call a straight A student by any stretch of the imagination, although I, I think I was a good student. And so one night she went upstairs and she sort of paced her bedroom and thought to herself, what can I do? How can I guarantee that my daughter is going to go to Oxford University? What can I do? And um, she came into my room and said, I've got it. I've got it. And I'm like, what, mom? She's like, I've got a plan that is going to guarantee that you are going to go to Oxford. And I was like, okay, let's hear it. And she decided that she was going to ban me from watching any television whatsoever until I had an actual Oxford acceptance letter in hand. And I think for a lot of people hearing this, that does sound so extreme. But what my mother did for me is that by eliminating distractions, you know, it meant that I had nothing else to do but study. That's what I did with my time. And I remember complaining to her and I said to her, listen, you know, there are lots of kids who watch TV all day and who, um, you know, play video games and who still go to Oxford and Cambridge. And she would say to me, yes, you're right, but you're not one of those kids. You actually have to work. I know my children and you have to work. And she was right. I did have to work. You know, I'm somebody who, if I'm going to go to that university, if I'm going to get three A's for A-levels, I have to work. And so she set up an environment where there was no other excuse. Um, she also, because I started switching television for the phone and spending all my time talking on the phone with my friends, she also got uh, one of those sort of small residential pay phones, which, you know, just look like normal phones, but have um, a slot on the side for coins. So if I wanted to talk to my friends, I had to pay 20p a minute, which meant I didn't talk to my friends at all. <laughs> or if I did, my conversations were very, very quick um, or, you know, they had to call me. And so, you know, that environment, um, that kind of uh, that kind of sort of choice, either I can just do nothing or I can open a book. And, you know, eventually I said, OK, whatever, I'll, op I'll open a book. And I would read and it began to be, it, be it sort of became something that I reluctantly began to enjoy. And um, it really paid off. And so 
you know, sometimes people ask me, well, are you going to do the same thing with your children? Are your children not going to be allowed to watch television? And I haven't really decided yet because um, my children are growing up in a very, very different time. You know, it's not just television. It's also tablets. It's iPhones. It's, you know, YouTube. It's Netflix. It's social media. I mean, I don't, I wouldn't even know how to begin to control that. And my, my son is only three, so I don't have to yet. Thank God. But, um, you know, I will say that for me, for me personally, it paid off because if you are, you know, a Nigerian girl and you are a child of immigrants and you are growing up in South London and you don't have much money, guess what? Going to Oxford does change your life. It really does. You know, it, um, there's not that much social mobility in England, you know, but Oxford is, is a way into a completely different life for yourself and your children. Um, and it has opened a lot of doors for me. So yeah, it's extreme. It's definitely extreme, but, um, but for me, it, it worked, you it know, worked. so that's it my worked. truth. Yeah. Um, you know, um, with, with you and you, like you say, your sons are very, very little, um, you know, still, how do you think that your upbringing will influence the way that you raise them? Like, are there already things that you're doing or conversations that you're having with your husband, but perhaps, you have slightly different views on, on, you know, how to, how to approach things. Yeah. My husband is very different. I mean, he is American. He grew up in New Hampshire. Um, he didn't have the sort of same tough love upbringing that I had, but you know, one of the things that my mother did for me or taught me was, um, she would make us divide our days into three equal parts. So obviously 24 hours in a day, um, three equal parts of eight hours each. And, um, there would be sort of Eight hours, obviously, allocated for sleeping is what she would say. Um, eight hours to be spent in school, roughly, give or take. And she always encouraged us to spend the last eight hours of our day working towards our dreams. Because in her mind, everybody in the world generally sleeps for seven or eight hours, right? Most people. Um, most people, if they're lucky enough to just have one job will typically spend roughly eight hours in the office if they're working a nine to five. So the only thing that's ever going to set you apart um, or distinguish you from everyone else is really how you spend the last eight hours of your day. That's it. Because the other 16 hours are already spoken for. It's already accounted for. So all you have to work with is the last eight hours of your day. And that is what distinguishes one person from the next. And I, and I think that as a mother now myself, I'm very conscious of how I spend my time. Um, and I can see that sort of seeping into how I raise my children. Obviously, you know, when you become a mom, um, you know, structuring the last eight hours of your day is quite difficult because it's hard. it's hard because, you know, the last eight hours of your day don't really belong to you. They belong to your kids. You know, you have to put them to bed, you play with them when they come home, when I come home from work, you play with them, you do bedtime stories, read, bath time, etc. And so really now um, that I'm a mum of two, the last eight hours of my day is, you know, the last really two to three hours. Um, but I see it sort of impacting how I want my kids to spend their time. Again, they're very young, so I don't really have to think about this too much yet. But I, you know, in the future, I can see that being a big part of it. Um, also, one of the things that I love about uh, my childhood is um, the emphasis on community that we had growing up. You know, I talk about in the book that when I was accepted into Oxford, my mother told me that people in our village in Imama threw a massive party in my honour. 
um, that when people had heard about this achievement, that there was dancing in the street, people dancing on top of cars, drinking into the night. And I remember being so moved. I mean, I was so moved that people that I had never met, that I had never even spoken to, whose names I did not know, could be so happy to see me do well. That they could be so happy for me to see me do well because there is this thing in Nigerian culture that successful one is successful all. And that community spirit is something that I, I really am trying to figure out ways um, to replicate it in here in New Jersey where I'm raising my kids. You know, this idea that, I mean, you know, in Nigeria, anyone, for example, this is just an example, can come to your wedding. You know, a wedding in Nigeria is not an exclusive thing. If you meet somebody, if you um, happen to have met someone once, or even if you're just walking past a place that happens to be holding a wedding, you can absolutely walk on in. You know, you're more than welcome because again, a celebration for one is a celebration for everybody. You know, even when um, a couple gets married, for example, they're appointed what's known as in my culture, at least uh, marriage sponsors. And that is uh, a couple who may have been married, let's say for a lot longer, 40, 50 years, who meets with the newlyweds every so often, just to explain to them the ups and downs of married life and what to watch out for and how to prepare yourself, you know? So this idea that really you're never in anything alone, you're never alone, you know, you have an entire community behind you. And that I think is why when my mother went through what we went through when my dad passed away, I mean, I was five years old, so I was still sort of navigating and trying to distill what everything meant. But, um, that feeling that there was an entire community behind us in Nigeria standing to support us is a really powerful one. And I'm not entirely sure how I replicate it here, but I'm, I'm thinking of ways. And do you think that that has something to do with the fact I, I watched your TED talk and you were talking about your feelings about competition, um, mm. about how, you know, actually, let's turn a blind eye to competition. Do you think that that, ha- that plays a part? Because if we actually focus on helping each other and trying to raise each other up and support each other rather than competing, then it benefits us all. Absolutely. I mean, I've seen my mum get so excited when I share news with her about my friends, for example, if my friend scores an amazing job or, you know, if I have a friend who's an actress who gets a wonderful part in a movie, my mum will cheer and cry tears of happiness almost as if I had achieved it. And I'm like, mom, it's not me, it's it's them. (laughs) (laughs) And she's so happy. And that is, that is the kind of, you know, that's who Nigerians are, you know, that again, I want to emphasize that that Nigeria has a lot of problems. Don't get me wrong, you know, but um, that is something that, you know, people, you can't take away from us. This idea that we are all in it together, this spirit of communion, togetherness. And so this idea of competition, I was raised really to turn a blind eye to it. I was raised just not to feed into it and not believe in it. And I was raised to sort of um, help people who might seem on paper as quote unquote, my competition, because there really is enough to go around. And by the way, every time that I have helped somebody else, there's never been less for me. There's never been a situation whereby I've ever regretted it. Like, oh gosh, I shouldn't have helped her because now I'm not going to, no, no. And so I was raised to sort of believe that that kind of thinking, that kind of scarce mentality is actually, you're feeling into an illusion that isn't there. And so 
it's a difficult thing to do, but once you start doing it, it becomes much easier and it just becomes a value that, you know, you hold dear that, that when people ask you for help, it doesn't matter whether they're in the same profession as you, whether they're com- quote unquote competing for the same job as you, you help them, you know? So that's what, that's the example that I was given growing up. And so that is what I try to replicate. Um, and talking about, you know, amazing achievements and celebrations, I love the description that you give in your book about um, the moment that your mum was invited to Buckingham Palace to see your brother, <laughs> Chiwetel, be awarded. Is, is that a CBE he got? He got an OBE and an a OBE. CBE. Oh, right. He got both. He got both. <laughs> but that, that moment where, you know... Um, you know, being invited to Buckingham Palace. I mean, that's incredible. Incredible. And so I think for my mom especially, it was sort of like, you know, having lived in England for uh, that time, it must have been, let's see, let me try and do the math. Uh, she moved in the early 70s. So by the time my brother was um, given the OBE, it would About have been 40 around 40 years. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and so she had a hard life in this country, you know, raising raising four kids, obviously being pregnant with my sister when my father passed away. And when you are a single mother, it is hard regardless. When you're a single mother and you're an immigrant, it is much harder because you don't have the same network of people, of family members to lean on as you would if you were born and raised in England. So it wasn't like she could just go over to her mother's house down the street and ask for help with the kids. You know, my grandmother did come for a little bit, but she is based in Nigeria, as is my grandfather and all of her, you know, cousins and aunts and uncles and her own siblings were based in different parts of the world. So for that period, she really was alone. And so, you know, she never felt on top of that, that she really ever fit in into uh, British society at all. She always felt that she was the odd one out especially going to school in this country in the early 70s, which is very different in terms of accepting immigrants compared to now. And so this feeling that, you know, because obviously I talk about this whole community spirit. So she went to Buckingham Palace feeling that she wasn't just sort of representing herself and my dad, but really an entire community. She really felt like the village of Imama, of Oye, of Oyofu Oye, where we're from, was behind her and was walking with her into the palace at that moment. And so it was so, so powerful for her, um, especially that she chose to wear, you know, Nigerian clothes um, to sort of show the world that she was unmistakably Nigerian. I mean, yeah, and that was that was a really sort of powerful moment for um, for her because it's when you live your life, you live life messily. You don't really sit down and analyze um, and distill the meaning, the meaning of your experiences. Nobody has time to do that. Um, and so that moment really gave her pause and gave her a minute to really reflect on everything she had been through and all the choices that she made that led her to that moment. I talk about in the book that when my brother um, wanted to act Initially, there was a moment that my mother wasn't a fan of it because she was just sort of like, what? You want to be an actor? What's that? Like, you can actually put food on the table as an actor. What are you talking about? And, um, you know, she initially wanted him to be a doctor or a lawyer, anything that's sort of easier to explain to her friends. But when the teachers at my brother's school sat her down and said, listen, you know, I've got to tell you that you would be nuts. You would be literally insane not to let this boy act. He's so talented. She began to realize, hmm, maybe there's something here. And um, I talk about in the book the fact that she 
you know, after she sort of made the decision and accepted that he was going to be an actor, she taught herself Shakespeare in order to push him to be better. This is my mother who, by the way, whose education was interrupted by war. You know, there were two and a half years during her childhood where she never went to school at all. And so her sitting there trying to teach herself Shakespeare as a single mom working, she, she ran a pharmacy in Brixton and each day she would try to take a different play one day or one week. It would be measure for measure. The next time it would be, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream. And she would just sort of really try to read through it to push him to be better. And they would rehearse together. Um, they would, my mother would play one part. Who knows if she understood what she was saying, but she would play one part and he would play the other part. And so, um, she had, she'd fought for all of us individually in our chosen professions. And so, yeah, it was a really proud moment for her. It's amazing. Um, now looking back over everything that's happened, what's the one thing that you think your father would be most proud of? I think he would be most proud of my mother. This idea that he had, you know, she had through all of that pain, through all of that. I mean, my mother suffered in her life, not just one great tragedy, but two in a way, because during the Biafra war, her younger brother died as well. Um, who was just, a, he was a child at the time. So it was that. And then with the loss of my father, I think my father would be so proud of that my mother had, had managed through all that pain, had channel, channel, channeled it, uh, towards us and towards giving us uh, a better life in the best way that she could. And so I think that the fact that she was managed to, she managed to stand on her own two feet through all of that is, I mean, it even makes me teary eyed. I recently, well, two and a half years ago, I was, I turned 36. And that was the same age that my mother was when she went through um, that tragedy. And it really haunted me because I cannot even, I cannot even imagine getting that kind of a phone call now. Cannot even imagine it. And um, the fact that she went through it pregnant, by the way, um, and emerged, emerged and pushed herself through it and tapped into that inner strength that she had. I think that my father would be most proud of that. Yeah. Well, uh, where the children take us, it is moving, it's inspiring, um, it, it's absorbing. It's, it's just, you know, I urge everyone listening to get hold of a copy. It's out on 28th of April. Um, Zane, a huge thank you for chatting to me today. It's been absolutely delightful to chat to you. Um, remind us where we can find you online to hear more from you. Yeah, so um, I'm on Instagram relatively frequently um, at Zane Asher CNN and on Twitter um, at Zane Asher and I have a website, zaneasher.com. So yeah, great. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTER Exclusions apply. See site for details.